What's up guys, Cameron here. Welcome to another edition of Tinseltown Thunderdome. Each episode we pick a genre, director, or theme and have the top movies from that category square off in a deathmatch tournament to see which film emerges victorious. Battles in the Thunderdome are fast, rough, and looking for the kill. We don't have time to cover all the fascinating facts, controversies, and mysteries about these movies, but we try to distill them for the purposes of each matchup. This episode, we toss the best of 21st century musical movies into the Thunderdome. This is shaping up to be a big year for musicals. In the Heights was recently released to some buzz and controversy. Some notable upcoming releases are Steven Spielberg's West Side Story, Lin-Manuel Miranda's Tick, Tick, Boom, and Annette, which recently made waves at Cannes Film Festival. The musical genre is large, so we set up some parameters for eligibility. These parameters are not an attempt to define the genre, but instead just a way to focus our discussion. First, due to the episode's close proximity with our Disney episode, we decided to not include animated films. Second, no biopics. We have nothing against those as musicals. We're merely making distinctions. The eight movies that made it to the Thunderdome are Sing Street, The Muppets, Once, Hedwig and the Angry Inch, a Star is Born, Enchanted, La La Land, and Inside Lewin Davis. And as always, joining me to judge this Thunderdome, we have Matt and Aaron. What's up, guys? Howdy. Hey, brother. Let's do this thing. So how, how have you guys been? Just hanging? Chilling? Catching up on 21st Century Musicals? For sure. I honestly feel like it's been too long since we've done a Thunderdome. That special episode was good, but I need to get back in bloodied. Yes, same, same. All right, for new listeners, a quick rundown of the show. We start with the top eight 21st century musicals, rank ordered based on the average of their Rotten Tomatoes percentages and INDB scores. Matt, can you explain that a bit? Sure. As most of you know, Rotten Tomatoes aggregates critics' reviews to give moviegoers a sense of what critics as a whole think about a film. IMDB, on the other hand, lets its visitors vote on the quality of a film on a 1 to 10 scale. To avoid biases, we've left our ranking system in the hands of critics with Rotten Tomatoes and general audiences with IMDb. It's by no means a perfect system, but one we think is agreeable. So we use that rank order of the films to seed the movies one through eight and pit them against each other in a March Madness style tournament. One V8, two V7, and so on. In the first round, we take a quick vote, eliminate four movies. After the first round, we'll take a moment to mourn the movies that didn't make it. The victors then move on to the round of four, where we debate the movies as they square off to see which two will move on to the final showdown. The last movie standing is crowned the 21st century musical champion. And since there are three of us, we'll never have a tie. Aaron, can you give us a quick intro of our topic today? Happy to do so. Musicals are so easy to understand and enjoy, but so much harder to define. What makes a musical? I'm not sure it's as simple as you think. Is it musical numbers that drive the plot or spontaneous song and dance? Is it lyrics that capture an essence of the story? Regardless of how you define them, musicals are lightning rods for debate. I expect no less from this mix of modern musicals that touch on topics as diverse as the plight of a scorned East German trans rocker 
to an aging green felt-skinned frog trying to get the band back together. It's anyone's guess which of this incredible group will come out on top. Get ready for the Thunderdome. All right, let's do it. Matt, you want to start us off? Absolutely. Um, Our first showdown is between the five and the four seed. We have at five, Inside Lewin Davis, 2013. This film is a week in the life of a young singer as he navigates the Greenwich Village folk scene of 1961. At four, Hedwig and the Angry Inch, 2001 film. A genderqueer punk rocker from East Berlin tours the U.S. with her band as she tells her life story and follows the former her former lover and bandmate who stole her songs. So I'll go first. I like your gumption there. I like you jumping in. Yeah. Way to seize the reins. <laughs> I always pass it to someone on the first go. I'll fall on the sword this one. And I think this is the hardest one for me, but I'm going to go Hedwig and the Angry Inch. Matt, who you got? This is the hardest by far, but I'm going with Lewin Davis. Aaron, who you got? I've got to spoil the Coens here and go with Hedwig. It just was too surprising. We probably had the same exact thoughts on this, Aaron. It's this was a close. These are both in my top four. Yeah, well, we'll we'll have to, we'll talk about it. <laughs> next matchup. The next matchup is between the sixth and the three seed. At number six, we have the Muppets. That is the 2011 The Muppets movie. A Muppet fanatic, with some help from his two human compatriots, must regroup the Muppet gang to stop an avaricious oil mogul from taking down one of their precious lifelong treasures. And at three, La La Land, 2016. While navigating their careers in Los Angeles, a pianist and an actress fall in love while attempting to reconcile their aspirations for the future. Okay, I'll go first again. La La Land. Aaron? Yeah, it's La La Land. I knew you were going to grab the reins and go first on that one. Wow, a lot of a lot of pointed things in the past voting rounds from you, Aaron. Well, I, I'm only <laughs> I'm I'm only saying that because I, I've seen the poster. I've seen the poster in your room. Yes, everyone. <laughs> I do have a poster of La La Land in my house. I do not have a poster of the Muppets, but um, I, this is also an easy one for me. Two LA films, but I I, I tack hard towards La La Land. So next matchup. We have seven versus two. At seven, we have A Star is Born, the 21st century one, 2018. A musician helps a young singer find fame as age and alcoholism send his own career into a downward spiral. And at two, Sing Street, 2016. A boy growing up in Dublin during the 1980s escapes his strained family life by starting a band to impress the mysterious girl he likes. I will go first again. A Star is Born. Matt, who you got? Uh, Sing Street. Aaron? Oh, I hate to be in this position, but I agree that this is an incredibly difficult decision. I have to go Sing Street. Oh, my God. You've made made enemies of both of us. Well, a lot of mourning. It's going to be a dirge to start this thing off. This is going to be an hour worth of mourning. All right, next matchup. The eight seed versus the one seed. At eight, we have Enchanted, 2007. A young maiden in a land called Andalasia, who is prepared to be wed, is sent away to New York City by an evil queen, where she meets a cynical divorced lawyer. And number one, once, 2007, the story of a busker and an immigrant and their eventful week in Dublin as they write, rehearse, and record songs that tell their stories. I'll continue the trend once. Aaron, who you got? This was surprisingly difficult for me. Mm. I'm going to leave it at that. It's once. (laughs) 
There are similarities in the plot, but once, yes, I pick once. All right, guys, well, there we go. We have our matchups. It's once versus Hedwig and then La La Land versus Sing Street. All right, let's get into it. What <laughs> the hell are y'all thinking? A Star is Born is quite possibly the best movie on this list. Well, I'm sorry to disappoint. Uh, I, I, I also want to mourn. And I think A Star is Born is a phenomenal movie. And I there were so many scenes from that movie that were touching. I couldn't couldn't get over how impressed I was and how I mean, I didn't want to watch this film. I'm, I'm not going to lie. A Star is Born was a movie that I had put off watching. I'm not a huge musicals guy. I love music, but I just don't typically go after the musicals genre. And yet when I watched this film, it accomplished so much of what a musical is supposed to accomplish. It had this kind of earthiness to it um, that I didn't expect. I thought it was going to be kind of glitzy, glammy, but it really had a personal depth to it. Kind of hard to turn down a film that has Dave Chappelle playing a serious role too, which was yeah, one of the best scenes. Yeah, it does so much, but I'm sad to see it not move on, even though I didn't vote for it. There's a lot to mourn here. Uh, Inside Lewin Davis oh, the, and The, the Muppets to me, to me, so To me, Inside Lewin Davis is the best film on this list. And is, in my view, the best Coen Brothers film. Oh, wow. But I'm not going to hog the podcast since we're not discussing it. But I, I come to that conclusion you know, after great pains and, and wrestling. I think Inside Lewin Davis is a phenomenal film. It's the most unlikable protagonist that the Coen brothers yes. have ever put forward. It is a takedown of the ethos and depravity of a kind of miserably self-centered period in American pop culture history. And it does all of that in the patina of a Coen brothers film. It just does everything that a Coen brothers film should do and yet it's super serious and very dark i mean that scene with the cat outside the car and i i just said <laughs> that that kind of got me in a way i don't know why and it's not because i own a cat although i own a cat but there's something about that that was so that might have been the most unpleasant scene in a coen brothers film i've ever seen there's so there's no warmth it, it's frigid but the music is warm and you get the yeah. sense he he's he has lost something. Like I actually feel he's so unlikable, but I feel for him in the loss of his friend. And you can sense that's there. And he's about to be handed what Bob Dylan had. And he blows it. He blows it and he the whole time he's complaining about basically the raw deal he's been handed and he could have had it. And he's just he just can't get outside of himself. I don't want to forget because I know we don't have a lot of time to mourn Enchanted. I mean, Enchanted, I thought this was going to be a throwaway. I mean, I really did. I thought, okay, this is silly. Why am I even watching this film? Like, I can just lie to the guys and pretend I watched it. It'll be voted off easily. But I couldn't believe how funny this movie was. It was really very irreverent, really clever. It was the first ta self-takedown of like Disney lore in a way that was self-referential and yet thoughtful, it is special. The Muppets, guys, so good. So good. Jesus. Whimsical. They they just let they just let the creatives have fun, I think. Whimsical, but also incredibly biting and smart. Yeah. yeah. I, I mean, and and I I just have to say like two words, Chris Cooper. Yeah. Highlight yeah, yeah, of that exactly. movie. I almost, I almost <laughs> let it slip in the in the describing the oil man, describing the oil man. I was going to make some Chris Cooper reference, but I'm like, I'm going to botch this. I can't, I can't do this on the fly. <laughs> 
as Matt and Aaron know, um, probably, but Chris Cooper is in my top five favorite actors working right now. He is amazing. I do want to, I think a chance to mourn a star is born. I actually think that was one of, for me, that was one of the best films of that year. I like Aaron didn't expect much. I ended up seeing it just cause I had seen all the other movies out at the time. And I went to the theater, watched it. And I was uh, like, I, I think three films on this list made me cry. And that, that one did actually, even though it's like not a, you know, I, I, cause it was unexpected. And it's that, that Bradley Cooper character really, really got to me. I was going to talk about this if it made it, but that is a movie that is meant to be seen in theaters. Yeah. I think there's only one other movie on this list that is truly designed for the cinematic experience, and that's La La Land. The attention to cinematography and sound design in both of those movies is unparalleled to the other ones on this list. I fully agree. This is where agreement may stop, but I agree. The scene where Lady Gaga is walking up where Bradley Cooper invites her to his concert. And it's like a five minute scene getting onto the plane, walking through the stadium, getting to the stage. That sound design gave me chills when I first watched it in theaters. The bass shook my seat and rocked my bones. It was so good. That's why I think it's it's a shame that, you know, Bohemian Rhapsody and that gets gets kudos when that didn't because it was this just just I think rocked its socks off. Yeah. All right, guys. We we should move on cuz I know we can mourn <laughs> these for a while. All right, let's just get right into it. Uh round of 4. Let's start with Sing Street versus La La Land. Well, these are two, despite the fact that they're both musicals, they're two very different movies. I'll jump in with a, a little note on La La Land. The color scheme, the setting, the acting, the music, everything about it is on point. At no point do you think this hasn't been perfectly curated. This hasn't been elegantly designed. This hasn't been even traditionally choreographed, which I think it was going for. And the story is it creates a tug on the heartstrings, but at the same time, this um, kind of harsh reality that makes you feel for both the success story and the, well, you, you wonder what, what is success without love? Are we rooting for personal satisfaction or are we rooting for professional satisfaction or there's, there's, there. It The movie for me posed questions more than it answered questions. And I love when movies do that. I mean, this is an amazing, I mean, it's not a sophomore outing exactly. I mean, he had like a student film, right? A student musical. Yeah. Park bench but thing. but he, uh, yeah. I'm counting it as his second film. It is yeah. stunning. Um, visually, sound design, like like I'm some sort of sound expert. I'm not. But more than that, the the the, okay, so. The vision expressed in the writing and then how the writing appears on film is really incredible. I think in some of the nuts and bolts of the dialogue and the story and, and, and like the names and like there are some very amateurish elements, but I think that becomes charming and enhances the film in a way because this is a film about a couple of amateurs who then are trying to make it big and... Giselle does make it big with kind of like amateur building blocks that that's that come together in what's I think a masterpiece. I remember when this movie came out, it was going around the film circuit or the festival circuit. And I remember seeing an article where Tom Hanks said, 
they don't make movies like this anymore. And he just absolutely loved it. And I thought that rang so true when I eventually saw it. I don't have a huge affinity for musicals, even though I love a lot of musicals. It's not like a genre that I am super passionate about. But Damien Chazelle, and I love when I see this, it like the moment I saw the movie, it was so clear to me. He is a master of his craft. He has an appreciation and understanding of movie making and the tradition of movie making, especially in the musical genre. And yet the movie felt new and fresh and it had a dimension to it that was contemporary. And he married the two in such a way that was amazing. It really moved me. And I was he was hitting all the notes that I wanted out of a musical. It's a love letter to Los Angeles. And um, he drafts that love letter in lyrics that everyone who has an appreciation for cinema and classic musicals can appreciate. And I think that does it a lot of favors, but also can be viewed by certain audiences as uh, appealing to a captive audience in a way. I think whether the film succeeds or doesn't succeed, it becomes polarizing by the very nature of its content and by the very nature of its plot. And yet I I agree with you, Cameron. I, Despite that pitfall, that potential pitfall, I fell into it gladly. And I, I enjoyed the hot tar that covered me when I landed. It was just such a, you know, Mulholland Drive is La La Land on acid. There's something that there's, there's this perpetual tale of a, a desire to make it in this really unforgiving place and, and how that transpires and undermines the human quality of the characters in these various films that tackle this subject is what makes a film like La La Land special. It's not quite Mulholland Drive for me, but it was a really, really touching film that deserves its place very high up on the list of musicals. For me, this movie, always in the background, Mulholland Drive. David Lynch's Mulholland Drive is in the background. And I I don't know if this is intentional by Giselle, where he has, if he has these layers or not. Mulholland Drive is one of my you know, 25 favorite films when I'm watching this movie and I watch this movie and I see Ryan Gosling, I see both of their dreams as utterly foolish. I watch this movie. I see a love letter to, to Los Angeles that is both sincere, but ultimately misguided and fatal. And I didn't know, I, I was like in that tension in the movie, I was like, wow, like this is lurking in the background is this like, for me, which is not like anything Giselle put in there, but it's just because of that 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 sort of bias I come in with. I see like the underbelly of David Lynch's Los Angeles in there. And I think in the end, he, Giselle taps into that because like I come away from the film and I'm like, your dreams were not worth it. Your dreams were not like like he he allows the space for that interpretation and that the 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 regret that I think both leads feel at the end or you're it's open to interpretation, but the way through song and montage that Giselle expresses so much in just the last eight minutes of the film. I picked that number arbitrarily, but you know, you know what I mean? If you've seen the film, that to me makes the whole film. And unlike Mulholland drive, there's actually like warmth and hope and love. And like, you, you know, there is something to their dream 
and they got a piece of something, but they're wondering, especially Ryan Gosling's character, I think is wondering like, you know, was this really worth it? But like the whole time you people criticized how he talks about jazz, how he appropriates jazz and all these things. A lot of the critics of the film and they're right, I think, but I don't know that that's unintentional. I, I think part of it is intentional. It's la la land. I mean, they're living in la la land and he is too, like this obsession with jazz. What's it, what's it going to come? Like the John legend character, while he's sort of viewed in, in the, the lens of the main characters, a sellout, I think he he's the one who has it kind of figured out and he's not cynical. He's yeah. Anyway, let's bring this over to Sing Street. Speaking of dreams, right? I mean, dreams that, uh, that, that maybe are misguided or maybe aren't this film. And of course, again, we're not talking about once yet, but, um, it, it's a successor to that film. And, um, I think it's more ambitious, but no less intimate. I, I say more ambitious because he had a bigger budget <laughs> and he was trying to accomplish, I think, more um, cinematically. I think he does a great job. You know, it's interesting. I, I want to get into it a bit more. But one of the things that I find interesting about Carney is he does an amazing job of creating this sense of dread. But it, it's almost always resolved without the kind of conflict that you're expecting. You, you like so whether it's um the scene where the priest is suggesting that he wash off the makeup in his personal bathroom or this the like sort of foreshadowing that the really angry boy with the shaved head is gonna like eventually beat the shit out of him like these things never come to pass you you assume something really bad is gonna happen maybe the boyfriend of rafina you assume that like maybe this guy's going to come back at some point and do something to like show the younger kid who's uh, interested in Rafina that that he's you know has no place in this relationship or whatever. But it, these things don't come to pass, and yet he does this amazing job of laying a foundation for dread, and I think that's useful because it allows the viewer to look at the main character as having insurmountable hurdles. And in a film like Sing Street, where really it's a story about a boy who wants to make it big as a Duran Duran type lead singer in a world that um, is incredibly unforgiving in Ireland, that's just right. That's what you want. Like the dread is really about sort of your kind of mundane circumstances. And, um, and I thought this was a brilliant film. I think one thing Carney does really well, and we'll see as he takes on bigger projects, and I haven't seen some of his bigger projects, but for the two films we're going to discuss, he stays within a place he knows, a a range of subcultures he knows. He's clearly tapping into autobiographical experiences as well in Sing Street. And we've talked about this, I mean, with with Martin McDonough and... and, um, uh, three billboards (laughs) in Ebbing, Missouri. Like, you know, there's nothing about Missouri there. You know, it's just like, just, just set something in the British Isles, Martin, you know, and you're like, it's fine. Like even, even the profanity is, is, is not for the right country, that kind of thing. So it's like, I'm not trying to be a nitpicker, but like he gets it right. He, he works with what he knows and it's, it's intimate. And he's, these films or this film is a funny film. I think the comedic timing is great. This is this is like scores of hilarious moments, which you don't need, but it was unexpected um, when I first watched this. And I've watched this film a few times, and you know I don't watch films multiple times. 
you sort of hit on this, Aaron, how he, and I'm not trying to like contradict you or anything. And you talked about his like aspirations to be this next Duran Duran. I think that his aspirations sort of evolve as things go by. But I love how at the end of the day, this is a movie about a young boy who wanted to get the girl. And he was willing to explicitly show how the boy was willing to do anything, even fake being in a band. He had no, he was not musically inclined. He knew very little about music. And then that plays really nicely with the dynamic with his brother. I think Carney has a better grasp of the musical genre. I think he's able to do these contained, complete films. He kind of has, I mean, I, I know he has a couple other films. Um, one did okay. Um, it was a, mu- a musical type film. And then there's one that completely bombed. Um, and he has a, b- a big one on the horizon we'll mention probably at the end. I think he has a better grasp of musicals, but I don't know if he can do anything else. I would I would be pleasantly surprised if he did something outside of the genre that was amazing. Whereas I think Giselle can do something outside the genre. And I haven't seen First Man, but based on what trusted friends have said, like he's demonstrated that he can do other things. I think musically, it's hard for me to to tell who has a better grasp. I mean, I, I'm grading this on four movies, two versus two, once in Sing Street versus Whiplash and La La Land. I think there's a comparable level of musical talent demonstrated. They're just different. I think what sets Chazelle apart and I think allows his ceiling for for uh, his you know creative talents to to go to new heights is that he is clearly a student of film in its complete package form. Whereas I think Carney may become a master of the musical genre in a way that allows him to be, to own that Uh, the sort of uh, this becomes his space and he exceeds what Chazelle does in terms of musicals, but does not reach Chazelle's heights in terms of his, you know, directorial prowess or something. So uh, it's complicated for me. I I think in some ways, the question that's interesting in this context is what music is better, La La Land's or Sing Street's? Um, I I don't have an easy answer to that, but I will say that. um, (laughs) Sure. Uh, But I think, um, I found the music in Sing Street such a beautiful homage to an era of music without aping or stealing from that music that it required real skill to pull that off. Um, And I found La La Land to be a beautiful homage to, you know, musicals of another era but I'm not sure that it took the same creative prowess musically to pull that off. It felt like Carney had, had put in, like I could, I almost would like to own the album for sing street just to be able to like, listen to that music. Whereas with La La Land, I think I appreciate it in the context of the film, but I don't know if I would appreciate it outside of the context of the film. That's, I mean, that I agree mm. with that, and then I will double down. Um, I, I, I don't have a problem with the music in La La Land, but I find it mostly forgettable. Um, 
while I don't remember and have memorized the, you know, like Sing Street songs, I just, I feel like you capture those characters and what you have is you have that creative process. And then, I mean, I love that again, that he becomes this rocker for no re for not for no reason for every reason in the world. Cause the, the girl's everything to him, but he knows nothing about her. And as we meet her, there's not much to either of them because they're they're young and they're becoming people. And then as the movie evolves, they become interesting. They they are growing and they're like being shaped. And I like how that aspect of coming of age is captured. There wasn't like some mysterious woman who he like suddenly met because he got close to her. She was actually they shaped who they became because they're figuring things out. You know, they're 14, 15 years old. And, and I think a lot of movies don't capture that when they, when they approach coming of age. What interests me, there's something that interests me more about Sing Street and something that interested me more about La La Land. In Sing Street, you see their family ties. These are not, well, you see, especially the main character, the brothers' family ties. You see many dimensions to their lives. You see why they develop the dreams they do. And, and, in one case, it's getting the girl, and then and for the older brother, it's escaping, and then ultimately the younger brother also takes the escaping and going out and, and and seeking new heights as his dream. So you get more dimensionality socially and relationally, familiarly. In La La Land, you just get these two sort of atomized characters, but I think the exploration of dreams and goals is more interesting in La La Land. Yeah. I largely agree. I identified with La La Land much, 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 much more than I did with Sing Street. Sing Street is a, a person who, sorry, the main character in Sing Street is a person who I probably am more similar to and yet not the person I want to be. So I watch Sing Street and and I'm so I know that's sort of seems counterintuitive, but what I mean is that like I aspirationally identify with La La Land, but on a personal level, I feel the impact of Sing Street more. I I I strangely identify with both the protagonist in um, my uh, youthful experience of wanting to win the girl um, and being willing to do sort of outlandish things that might attract her attention. And then I identify with the older brother and his philosophical musings and sort of cynical attitude and real desire to see um, his younger siblings succeed in an area where he was unable to, and, and maybe because of his own doings or maybe because of his family circumstances, I felt such pain around the family experience, even though that's not overly stressed you know, I, I kind of wish Carney had spent a little more time with the sister. I think that was a, a missed opportunity. I think he could have could have given a little more energy to that. I, I felt it was a bit of a throwaway. But even so, um, I think there was a lot of heart in that story. However, La La Land does such an amazing job of capturing this kind of inner desire for recognition in the pursuit that one wants the, the mark that one wants to leave on this planet. It, it, it is not a vain film. 
there is certainly vanity explored in the film, but the film tries to, I mean, the, the, the Ryan Gosling character is not seeking fame for fame's sake. I mean, I think that the, the, the film doesn't explore something that is, is rooted in this kind of celebrity ethos, but rather is rooted in something about our desire as, as people to, to, to leave something of ourselves behind. And yet, ironically, we lose something by doing that. And that's a really poignant point to make in a film. It's funny the the movie that does sort of tackle that idea of celebrity and the effects of that is a star is born, which I was really hoping to talk to uh, talk about. But uh, anyway, let's put it to a vote. Matt, I've written my answer in an envelope. It's going to um, sing street. No, it says La La Land. Wow. I'm, I am surprised. I, I, went, I, went, I went a little harsh at the end to kind of throw you for loop Cameron, but I, I, yeah, I, I, I was watching your facial expressions. <laughs> I have to go for sing street. Wow. I like the unexpected turns here. Okay. I'm going to go La La Land. It was consequential because I knew I was going to be the swing vote, but Cameron thought Aaron was the swing vote. Sorry. There's a lot of behind the scenes with this that, that we, can't really get into, but I, I felt a lot a heavy weight on my shoulders and it was very close for me. Let's move on. Once versus Hedwig. Both of these movies are shocking, surprising, extremely entertaining, deep, dynamic musicals. I mean, and, and so different from each other too. <laughs> Hedwig is arguably the most jarring and uncomfortable film I've ever watched. And all of that is important to what it accomplishes and what it accomplishes is something that I think is rooted in this desire to make an audience feel what Hedwig is feeling and to do so in the style that his brain, her brain is likely working on this childhood angst when this little boy is is experiencing the trauma of living on the wrong side of you know the the divide in germany of the you know the development of these like uncomfortable experiences that build upon each other and layer in such a way that it all comes back to this unclear desire to find one's other half and yet is it a platonic other half or is it a sexual other half is it a there's this like missing component to Hedwig that he's he is looking for she is looking for throughout the film and that is really a trauma that I experienced and at the end when when she's walking when she's walking down the street naked it is a really I don't know it the film I, I think there's a lot of films that must have stolen I mean I felt like that was yeah. Birdman stole from that film did yes. it not I mean like, there's this the star of this film what is it John Cameron Mitchell John Cameron Mitchell yeah. never heard of before unbelievable performance unbelievable performance well he also wrote though I think some, someone else did the music but he did the lyrics I believe and 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 directed this as well right yeah I mean I'm just gonna second everything you guys said and just say this movie is brilliant everything down to its construction it didn't reinvent the wheel but it and this is similar to lawland but like it did it in such a way that made it feel so fresh and original and clever constructing the movie as a series of performances that tell the story of his life was incredible 
I hear this a lot and it really irritates me when people say you have to be a certain person or have certain experiences to relate to a movie. That's just total bullshit. That is either snobbery or failure on the storyteller's part. This movie, I think, reveals the real thing at the heart of that comment is the ability to empathize versus sympathize. This is a movie about a non-binary or genderqueer person. I am not that person. (laughs) Obviously, there is a disconnect, but that doesn't mean I can't relate to it. And his ability to allow me to sympathize and his ability to earn that. I don't mean earn that in like a a condescending way. You you don't just have to be a non-binary person to be able to relate to what's going on here. And I think that is the brilliance of this movie outside of everything else that is so brilliant. At the core of this, it is a movie that is very foreign to a lot of people. And yet he made it so relatable. Well, this movie was such an indie smash in 2001 as a as a uh, 19 year old. I had heard of it, read a review, and I was like, this is very foreign to me. But it was so universally well reviewed. I in the back of my mind, I was like, I'm going to see this someday. I think the themes and philosophies that are explored go very, very deep. Each song delves into a lot and you're just thrown into it. You're thrown into it in the first two songs, and I'm like, I don't think he's going to explain anything that's happening in this movie. And then you actually get this person's whole life. So the the, the storytelling is unconventional, and and you get drowned in it. But then it's it's not overwhelming. It's actually it's it's an excellent way of telling the story. It's it's incredibly disjointed at the beginning, but on purpose. Yeah, and that disjointed opening is a good way to introduce the audience to the character and the cutaways are fantastic the flashbacks are appropriate and well suited to the the quirkiness of the film i love the scene where hedwig as a boy and then as an older character has a head in an oven and is relaying some of the experiences that are happening the creepy, what was it, an Air Force guy who like gives the gummy candy, yeah. the gummies, yeah, yeah. Uh, like, there's something about that which I don't know. I mean, just even like, uh, you know, the the idea that like this person's getting getting to go to the United States by means of a relationship, and then the satisfaction around that, and how that relationship plays into the sexuality issue yeah. at the heart of it was very clever. The, the the mother is painfully unpleasant and and yet central to Hedwig's makeup and the relationship with the uh, the guitarist in the band that is yeah. Yeah. unrequited and the obsession with the boy what's his name Johnny Gnosis. I keep wanting to say Tommy Bahama. And Johnny Gnosis is such a good because <laughs> It gets into the, this this esoteric philosophy stuff that Hedwig's so into. Yes. So, yes. Yeah. And he and Johnny Gnosis is really just a moron. <laughs> yeah. I mean, even the like very basic animated montages are yeah. 
are well done. It's just really nice. It's um, and I didn't expect it. I, my favorite scene for its uncomfortable humor is when Hedwig plays the um, what's it like a women's empowerment? Yeah, yeah. Concert <laughs> and like one woman is there. <laughs> it's just there's there's so many scenes like that where again it's uncomfortable and yet it's perfect. All the extras, I don't know where they got these extras. If every film had these extras, every film would be a masterpiece. <laughs> the, 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 the extras are amazing. <laughs> but in, in, in spite of, um, you know, what you said about you, you making, sort of jarring the audience to to realize that, well, you know, I, there's something I'm missing or, or I'm not quite with the times. I don't feel that there's any agenda with this film other than to plunge you into the depths of so much thought and consideration of boundaries in every sense of the word, geopolitical, gender, you know, uh, romantic, everything, everything. And not either just like a philosophical exercise where like, you know, not not this sort of thing where like, well, I'm going to show that I'm smart and I'm going to reference, you know, Plato's symposium and do all this. No, like not just reference, but really, really immerse you in a lot of things that make you think for four months on end. Well, yeah, and he gives a fresh interpretation of that and connects it to the themes that he's doing, not just ham-fisting yeah. it in there. The origin of love. Well, and it's it's the centerpiece. Not only was the song amazing, but the decision to make it stop yeah. motion was yeah. brilliant. The style of rock isn't really something that is particularly interesting to me, and yet it was captivating to watch and and a feast for the ears it is a really there were catchy songs at the um, end of the day they were catchy. taking my words man <laughs> you know i think a lot of times with a musical too much effort is is made to to tell a story within the song mm-hmm. forsaking the catchiness or the interesting aspect of of just being entertained by music i don't think any of these movies do that or certainly not the ones that moved on to the final four. Uh, and that may be a big component of why they moved on is that the music is so good. Uh, and this doesn't, doesn't really, um, in some ways it's a bigger, it's a bigger lift for me. It falls outside of the genre yeah. of music I'm interested in and yet it succeeds. We've been harping on Hedwig, but we, we got to talk about once. Yeah. At least once we got to talk about once. I thought this movie was, equally good to sing street this is the other john carney film this is a movie that is very similar to la la land and yet it was almost the antithesis to a lot of things la la land was yep la la land was this glitzy hollywood production that relished in it and this was a very gritty raw street story i know that john carney was primarily motivated by his budget limitations. The production value was not quite there, worked in its favor. I am thankful that he didn't have a bigger budget because if it was made like Sing Street was made, I don't think it would have been as powerful. I agree. I think reality is a trademark of the film. It really trades on the idea that it is capturing a slice of life it is capturing something secret and intimate. It is not, you know, clearly this is a film full of amateurs, including the stars who really have 
gone on to do nothing in acting and yet really gave tremendous performances. It's not surprising to me, having read a little bit more about their lives, that they developed a relationship. It was clear they had chemistry in the film, despite, I think, nearly 20 years of age difference. I'm going to go out on a limb here and say that it is the most likable music for me. I found the folksy kind of bluegrassy Irish folk songs really, really, really pleasant. There were so many scenes that were memorable. I I find myself thinking about the movie quite a bit. It is always seeking to, to give you a sense of what the average person might experience in an unusual time in their lives. So it goes beyond this musical aspect, which I think a lot of these films are sort of rooted in the music. And while the music is key to this film, you know, this story, this story of kind of life and how life is um, unforgiving and kind of leads you down paths that you kind of wish it didn't. And you may just have to grab the moment and hold on to it in your memory, but it may not last for as long as you want it to is really something all of us have experienced. Mm. And this movie captures that in spades. I mean, actually, the more we talk about it, yeah, the 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 the, the more sort of, the, the word isn't melancholy, but the more emotion that I feel about it, it's um, it's not melancholy exactly, but it's like, a, it's not regret. It could be melancholy. The movie definitely has melancholy to it. It's an element of the, of the feeling I got, but sorry, go, go ahead. It's very, re- like, the fact that the 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 other relationships of the two main characters are not really shown much but that you know the the female protagonist has a couple of songs that el- that that allude to you know very very painful and complex things and that that's all we get but it works and also there's this montage scene with with the the male protagonist where he it's like home videos and you see his ex and you can see that there's something there but so it's i think it's rare to have a film where you're really well at least i was rooting for these two but you realize you're only seeing this moment in their lives and you don't see the whole picture mm-hmm. And the, but you see glimpses of this other life that they've had, and we don't get to see what that is, and that's probably where they end up. But it's I don't know. It's it was unique. It was unique in a way that I had thought about for years after seeing the film. The idea of it being like a glimpse into their lives. The word I sort of think of is a fling, and this is sort of the mature exploration of a of a fling between essentially two adults. I, 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 I'm picking up what you're putting down, Matt, of like the word that is trying to like encapsulate that. I can't help but come back to like poignancy or melancholy. Poignancy but, and, and there's an ephemeral nature to, the, to, to what happens, but it's not just substan- substantive what, what's, what's there between them, but it's actually, you know that a whole life could be built on this. And it would be more meaningful than what you see between like characters like Romeo and Juliet, which is kind of like, why do they like, you know, it's like, you know, some of these great tragedies and romances are like, well, why, why, why do we care? Uh, Sorry, sorry, Shakespeare. But um, in this case, they're like, (laughs) no, this, yeah, maybe a fling, but it's, they have something very real and they could build a whole life on that. And it would be more meaningful than probably 
you know, half the viewers have experienced in their own lives. And, and yet it's a, it's the dynamic tension between life and love. Mm. And that tension is, I mean, it, it's telling this tale of an immigrant story. It's the tale of a, you know, a, a sort of downtrodden street musician. They're, they're at cross purposes and yet everything about them works until you intermingle the realities of their existence. And then none of it really works beyond the music. And that's really beautiful because they get this moment, this window to experience that. And they do, and they'll never forget it. And yet they both know that it's not really in the cards to take it beyond that. That is, is a magical thing to capture in a movie like this. It is. And the, the ending was so well done. Yeah. It, there was a there were so many ways I think this movie could have ended and I would have been dissatisfied. And yet the way it ended was the most satisfying. It was unsatisfying. And yet it was the most satisfying way of leaving me uncomfortable and yet feeling like this is truth. I'm seeing truth here. Well, you know, I think I think I, I want to maybe tweak one little thing. I think a lot of it could have worked. And really one of the characters kind of puts, in my view, puts the brakes on it. And it is, yeah, it's not just a satisfying ending because it's like, well, this is probably the best, but it's it's because it's the brakes aren't put on without extreme sadness. And the fact that I think it could have gone forward if one of them hadn't kind of pumped the brakes a bit makes it all the more meaningful because they had a different path that could have been very, very fulfilling and different but there were these real life considerations and it wasn't it's not just like a class thing it's like a person involved and that's very very substantial the fact that you you talk about the real life considerations and the fact that he purposely made the choice to have the female not only be an immigrant but have a child was crucial to the storyline um because if she didn't have those real life circumstances to take into consideration, this would have been a vastly different movie and would have had a vastly different ending. And that was like sort of the maturity that I think mainstream Hollywood films like La La Land are unwilling to explore because they're not big cash cows. And it's just a different type of movie. And like one is not better than the other. And for the the audiences out there, I mean, the story is basically this idea of the street performer who gets into a relationship that really never goes beyond the chemistry of that relationship with this street vendor through a series of, of interesting circumstances. It, it's um, She's always reserved throughout the film. That's something that is also very, very important to the way the sequence of events occur. Yeah. It, you know, she's not immediately, there, there's no, there's no, you know, one night stand. There's no, she is a very, conservative character in many ways. She dresses conservatively. She's thoughtful about how she engages with him. She's, you know, puts up, puts forward some barriers and yet you can sh- see that she's, there's an intense chemistry between yeah. the two. Uh, that is really elegantly put together. Yeah. And, and, and you hit on something that is yet another box that Hollywood would check in a very different way. So, if they're telling this story of like a fling, 
it would be incredibly romantic with a, you know, like, okay, a perfect example of this is Titanic. That is a very different approach to a fling movie. And the ending of that is a very different ending. Again, one is not better than the other. I'm glad they both exist. I just really appreciate this one. And, and you sort of talk about how, Aaron, you said the ending was so well done. I think that was the only ending. And if he didn't end it that way, we would never have heard of the film. <laughs> yeah, this, well, this is like speculation, of course. But like, you're right. You're like exactly right, Matt. The movie would have been forgotten. That is what made this movie everything was just its devotion to what would really happen in a circumstance like this. That is enough. That is an engaging story. We could talk about these two movies for a long time, but at the end of the day, one's got to go. Aaron. Putting me on the spot here. I'm going to have to say that once is the victor. I will go and I will say Hedwig. Matt. Once. But it's hard. It's close for me. And it, the whole time we're talking about Hedwig, I was almost sure I was going Hedwig. And then we got about three, mm. four minutes into once. And I, I it's a battle. <laughs> I don't think if we had flipped them, I still would have come on once. Just to be clear for the audience, it's not. No one got a raw deal. Wow. Like, come on once and a raw deal. Not good. <laughs> <in your window. laughs> Sorry for all the five-year-olds out there listening. <laughs> all right. So we got our final showdown, guys. La La Land versus Once. I'm really excited about this. The two most similar films are competing. <laughs> this is a duel. It's a real duel. They're like the same. It's like a, two studies of the same plot line. It's an ancient rivalry like Sub-Zero and Scorpion. <laughs> <laughs> Will orange or blue win? I'm not sure. Yeah. A couple, a couple of quick things about once that I, I want to highlight. Um, you, you mentioned the sort of uh, the grittiness of the film, the production quality. Seventy five percent of its budget was from the Irish Film Board. Mm. It was shot without permits in a lot of the Dublin scenes on a long lens to make the amateurs feel more comfortable because they, you know, were uncomfortable on set. I think John Carney like gave his salary to the two leads basically because otherwise he couldn't have pulled it off. So, you know, I, I think about a film like that as an accomplishment just being made. And usually a film that has those circumstances isn't as perfect as once. And yet it accomplishes amazing things. I think small stories like this, without the glitz, without the passionate romance, are incredibly difficult to tell and probably mostly exist in this kind of independent format. And we need more of it because it's a, it's a story that holds a lot of meaning. And I think so many people can relate to at some point in their lives. This, there are two scenes in this movie that really hit a home run for me that we haven't talked about already. And that is when they're in the recording studio. Th that whole sequence is amazing. The producer, well, the, yeah, the sound producer who's an asshole, yeah. who then realizes that, in fact, this is a really jovial bunch and um, they're actually incredibly talented incredibly talented. I want to just spend time with these guys and I actually don't want this to ever end. That was amazing. And then the scene with the father where he plays the demo tape at the end. I mean, that tore me up. Like mm. that was like such a heartfelt moment where you realize this scene has taken it and like dug just a little deeper to give you just a little bit more to cry about. I was watching that seen at like 1130 at night. And I really had a, a, a hard go of it. You know, like I looking for the Kleenex. It was such a good, good mix of 
of really heartfelt scenes. Another thing with with Once, I mean, I, I like Once a lot better than Sing Street. Um, and one thing I like about it is there's not the the he has like his relationship with his father is very positive, and all, not that that has to be in a movie, but you don't you don't see it much. And he's not he's not trying to make it to escape, so it takes away some of these elements that are often the points of conflict to focus on something that's much more kind of inner conflict. You know, there's nothing stopping this sort of union of, of, you know, of, of souls, you know, it's like, it's not parents, not even like, you know, nationality, even though that's a factor, but like they are agents of their destiny in a lot of ways. And like, yeah, it's, it's, I, I just think it's more in line with, with what a lot of people experience, you know, it's not like, Hey, I have one chance to get out of Ireland and then then I'm going to make it, you know, like or hey, I'm going to become a really successful movie star in Los Angeles. You know, it's more like a dead set goal to have a jazz club in a particular street. What did you think about the immigrant mother and her oh. role in the film? I mean, that whole everything, everything in that apartment was amazing, including just the the, the stoop and, and, and those guys coming over to watch TV. Everything was so great and lines up with my experiences in various places um, living throughout the world. I've never been to Dublin, but I'm, I'm sure it's just like that in, in a neighborhood that is like what's in the movie. Yeah, I think a word that might sort of, I, I feel like it encapsulates it for me, but I think is sort of what we're beating around is um, is melodrama. And this movie does everything to yes. not be melodramatic. And I think that is a brilliant decision. I think too often, 99% of the time, too often just doesn't do it a correct service. It is almost every time. Everything is a melodrama. And this movie is as far from that, relatively speaking, as you can get. To make a very weird comparison, but like I hate when horror movies, and I, I think horror is like the primary culprit of this, will fall back on those tricks, you know, the the cheap scares and whatnot, in order to accomplish what they're trying to do in this genre you know we were talking about these like this romanticism or you know the the, the dynamic with the dad like that would have been a you know a studio exec would have said we need more conflict in this there's nothing tangible that the audience can get behind so let's make the dad like not approve of his decision La La Land, in terms of set pieces, may be one of the greatest home runs in recent memory. The scene at Griffith Observatory is tremendous. The dance sequences with this kind of classic L.A. studio set, even the like kind of smoky jazz hall, jazz room, you feel alive and invigorated by every aspect of that that movie. And... um it's effortless. Both movies are once. They're both the moment, moment in time. Um, I say they're both once because obviously the one in Ireland can't be La La Land. The, the thing for me, and this isn't going to affect my evaluation between the two films, but I do not for the life of me understand why, sorry, this is, Seb, why didn't Seb just go around Europe and like play jazz? Sorry, I know that's like a plot point nitpick, but it's like, I don't. I don't get it. Well, I understand it at once. I understand it at once why they decide to do what they do. But he did that because remember, we are led to believe that he stays with John Legend's yeah, band. But- it isn't until later that we realize that at some point he realized that Mia was right. You know, he needs to go for what sure. his dream is. Damien Chazelle even 
says that explicitly at their final scene at Griffith, where Ryan Gosling says, I need to find my way. For that end sequence to the movie makes it for me. Without that end sequence, this movie's not even in my, my, my top four musicals. But I love the movie because of the ending. It goes for fantasy all the way. It goes for romanticism. And that's why I wanted to emphasize earlier that like they both have their place yeah. and one is not better than the other. I have no problem admitting I'm a hardcore romantic and it was made for me. <laughs> Look, La La Land is, is all the things it needed to be and more. It is one of the, the parts about the, the movie that I think is underappreciated is how much, let me put it this way. I'm constantly feeling as if La La Land is trying to capture an essence of what Los Angeles is all about. And yet there's a universality to what the characters are trying to accomplish. In other words, there's an overemphasis in my mind on the LA specific aspect of La La Land. It's like, oh, it's this like LA story and it's a musical and it's a throwback to, to what musicals of another day were like. But all of us have these dreams that we envision ourselves accomplishing. And most of us don't succeed in at least some of those dreams. And yet we can envision ourselves in some multiverse accomplishing those dreams and living out this life. This film shows us both the reality and the fiction. And it does so in a way that highlights the victimhood of both protagonists. Emma Stone or Mia is a victim. She's happy until she realizes that she's missing something. And Seb, similarly, he's he's happy and yet he's reminded of his loss. And, you know, you mentioned that it's a fling movie in a way, but this one's deeper than a fling, right? It's a relationship movie. And in some ways, that relationship never gets to be, it's like uh, what they used to say when we were in college. It's when um, two people are playing house. You know, they're they're in college, they're living together, they're unmarried, and their actual lives are still to come. Their professional adult lives are still to come. And yet they really love each other or there's a chemistry there and they feel like they can make a life out of this thing. And so they're pretending to make a life out of this relationship. And yet when reality hits, all that playing house goes away. And yet they could have envisioned a life with kids and vacations and beauty and it never is fulfilled. And La La Land really pulls that off. And I think it could have pulled it off without having had it set in Los Angeles. And I I really think many people would have been less harsh on it had it gone with a different setting. Yeah, I, I think I think you're right. I think there is definitely a stigma towards that LA and Hollywood aspect of it. I will say though, the more and more I watch it, and this isn't a shot at you, Aaron or Matt, but so many people label this as a LA love story. And I don't think it's that at all. There is definitely an L.A. love story aspect to it. But this is sort of like what I was talking about, where the movie has a facade, but at its core, there's a very central story. And this has nothing to do with L.A. And it's what you were saying, Aaron. It's about these people, their dreams, reality, the juxtaposition of those two things. Well, uh, to go on to what Tom Hanks said about they don't make movies like this anymore, it, what, it, what came to my mind is if you take our two contenders here and combine them, I think you get Casablanca, which is – so like <laughs> I think that both films capture mix of melancholy, regret, possibility, all of these things all mixed together. And a lot of films, especially romances, do not capture that. And that makes both of these films really special. 
both of these films have also like strongly influenced my own way of being and my own personal decisions and how I live my life. I think it's rare that I can see a film and say that film saved me in a way, whether it's heartache or something else. But I think Giselle, I don't know if Carney did, but Giselle put something of himself in that movie. I don't know. You know I divorced shortly before that. Um, and I, you know, he put something in there and that sacrifice meant something to me when I first, when I watched it and ruminating on it afterwards and the same with once, you know, it's like these movies are consequential um, and can really have deep meaning for viewers as they have for me. People, I think wrongly criticize La La Land for just being a rehash of Whiplash Yes, obviously there's jazz and it's a very musically inclined movie. And yes, there's this dy- dynamic of a of a relationship and a and the dichotomy between dreams and like the sacrifices you have to make in order to accomplish those dreams. But the scene in Whiplash where Miles Teller breaks up with his girlfriend in order to focus on his drumming. It's om- it seems to me Chazelle anticipated the criticisms of that scene in not showing its full nuances or the complexity of, you know, what could have been, but also her point of view. And La La Land is sort of that scene explored throughout the whole movie and giving her dimensionality. Sincerity is a dying thing in this world. Everything is cynical. Everything is ironic. And no one is willing to put themselves out there. And Chazelle and Carney are both willing to tell sincere stories that are earnest, but don't go too far in their earnesty. They sort of find this sweet spot that just doesn't turn you off. And I think they do that by marrying it with this sense of reality juxtaposed with with dreams. The montage is brilliant and moving in the same way like the up montages and like how, what Pixar is makes their bread and butter on but i don't know if they make their bread and butter that's not the same but i do think at least every other episode you should reference the up montage (laughs) yes yeah oh my god so great but what it does that i think is actually more impressive than the up montage is that it combines that with the things that have already happened through the movie. And it's sort of like when I watch a comedian do stand up and when they can tell a story and a joke at the beginning of their, of their act and then tie that in at the end is brilliant. And if they do that in a way that's natural and not ham fisted and the fact that the montage included, like when it started off back in JK Simmons's restaurant and we saw them kiss as opposed to walk past each other, my mind was blown in the montage just started. my mind would have been blown if they hadn't showed it in the trailer but it was it was close to blown because they they showed it in the trailer but yeah i don't sorry i just that annoyed me when that happened i was like why'd you show that in the trailer look anyway. I, I just a just a very quick aside please eliminate trailers only offer teasers from now on i'm just de- devastated by trailers i think it's time to vote i think it's time to vote who wants to go first? Well, I'll put myself out on the line. I think this one has to go to once. Matt? Two films I pers- two films I personally love. Two perfect endings. La La Land has a better ending. 
Yeah, I like Once better as a film. Once. Okay. The reason I chose to go last is because I knew you guys were go both going to go once. That was the only thing I knew was you be La La I didn't know what Aaron and me were going to do. No, 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 no. I thought Hedwig was going mm-hmm. to win this. I was going to vote Hedwig to win this. I thought La La Land and Hedwig were going to be the final showdown. And I was going to make sort of a pretentious proclamation <laughs> that Hedwig was the best musical on this list. Even though I prefer La La Land as a movie that I revisit, but I think Hedwig was a better. This is your montage ending where you walk across J.K. Simmons club and give Hedwig a big old kiss. I just, I don't think Once is a better musical. I think they're both equally good at that. La La Land takes the edge because it's one of those movies that I, I just, um, at the end of the day, this comes down to what I want to revisit and the romanticism and fantasy and escapism is something that takes it over the edge. So I just wanted to, it it was just a weird situation because Hedwig was actually going to take the cake. If that was the matchup. Well, this is the, this was a roller coaster today. Really was. You you really bring up an interesting point, Cameron, which is um, the rewatchability of a film. And um, I'll admit I, I, probably won't watch once again i'll i have listened to the music since i don't think i'll watch the movie again unless i'm watching it with someone and i want to introduce them to it i will watch la la land um multiple times in the future i just know that it has uh, watchability that's important and that is a big factor for me in in thinking about a movie's greatness and um, how these movies age over time will be interesting as well. The freshness of having seen some of these movies for the first time was really important. But I don't think we've had a list of films that I have been so favorably disposed to in the entire Thunderdome four episode <laughs> series we've had so far. Um, and but I, but it's it's amazing. I, none of these films were weak to me none uh, inclusive of enchanted none no um and uh i could have picked one of five films as the winner and been satisfied like Mm. the top five films were easily winning material and frankly even a star is born yeah six six of the eight films could have won and i would have been okay with it i think that nail was hit on the head i mean inside lewin davis is yeah. incredible incredible uh honestly i think I, I think you're right i think enchanted is incredible deserves to be on this list doesn't deserve to be the winner <laughs> same goes for muppets but everything else it's like if you told me stars born yeah. won this or lewin davis or whatever i'd be like yeah, yeah. i could see that <laughs> yeah and i think that is gonna be unique to this and i would be surprised if it comes up again but who knows and the battle was twice as long as usual. So I think it's, I mean, that's because there's so much to dive yeah. into. It, these are rich films. And they're all doing so many different things, but yet they're s- similar in so many different ways. Yeah. So uh, thanks for um, helping me figure out which was the best because I I tried to predict the winner at the beginning and I kind of failed miserably. I thought Hedwig was also going to win. And... Um, mm-hmm. I was wrong and I didn't know what yeah. was going to be in its place. 
I, I, I thought it was going to be either once Hedwig, Lewin Davis, or La La Land, but that's not saying that much. So <laughs> one of half the films. <laughs> yeah, but I knew, I knew it wasn't going to be Sing Street. And I knew it wasn't going to be... Anyway. There you have it. Once is the best musical of the 21st century. In the Heights is currently streaming on HBO Max. And West Side Story is expected on December 10th. It was announced in April that John Carney director of Once in Sing Street, will direct a George Gershwin-based musical called Fascinating Rhythm, produced by none other than Martin Scorsese. And on that note, the next Thunderdome will be New York gangster films set in 1960s and 70s. The Many Saints of Newark, the story of Tony Soprano's early life set in the 1960s and 70s, is scheduled to come out later this year. I know we're excited for it, and I'm sure Sopranos fans are too. And we'd like to try something new this go-around. Our listeners have asked that we give them a chance to participate in the Thunderdome watching experience, and we're all for that. So if you want to get ahead of the curve, here's the list of movies we'll toss into the next Thunderdome. The Fringe Connection, Goodfellas, A Bronx Tale, Mean Streets, Once Upon a Time in America, The Warriors, American Hustle, and Donnie Brasco. And be on the lookout for our next poll and vote to determine our next episode's category. Thanks for tuning in. Our theme song is by David Huck. You can find us on Instagram and Twitter at Tinseltown Thunderdome. We are on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and anywhere else you find your podcasts. Make sure to like and subscribe and leave a review to let us know how we're doing. Until next time, thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.